Welcome to Priority Message Series 1. This podcast is brought to you by the Fire and Rescue Services Association, a trade union within the Fire and Rescue Service that is independent and member-led. You can find out more about FRSA by visiting frsa.org.uk. Hello, welcome to this podcast um, in a series that the FRSA have produced. Uh, This podcast, the theme of this is about medical response and also co-responding. My name is Ben Redwood. Uh, I'm a whole-time and on-call firefighter based in Devon and Somerset, and I'm also Secretary of the FRSA branch in Devon and Somerset. And I'm joined today by Terry Reynolds. Yeah, good afternoon, um, everyone. Um, yeah, my name's Terry Reynolds. I'm an uh, uh, yeah, on-call firefighter at Hatherley. I've uh, been in the uh, fire service now just over 40 years, and part of my role at Hatherley is I'm a co-responder. Um, which is something that um, I'm very keen to do and have enjoyed for many years. Fantastic. So, as I said, the subject of this is about medical response and co-responding and what the fire service can and can't do. And also a little bit about the history of this, which is a subject that has bounced around for many years. Um, I'm going to – the background of this is – relies on three or four key reports that have been written over the last 10, 15 years. Um, One of them was a report written in 2017 by the University of Hertfordshire, a report called Broadening Responsibilities, and that was followed by a new economy study looking at the finance of that. Um, And I'm also going to draw on a a document called Fighting the Fire, a response to the fire chief's proposal to run England's ambulance service. Um, But before we get into the, the weighty stuff, I thought it'd be really interesting to talk to Terry, who is a, a co-responder, which means he's a firefighter who also offers a medical response. Um, Terry, tell us about what you do. Tell us a little bit about Haverley. Tell us about the fire station and what life is like as a co-responder. Um, yes, um, well, Haverley was one of the first uh, co-responder stations to start with uh, Devon Somerset Fire Rescue back in the late 1990s. I think it was around about 1998. Um, and when we started... Um, it was very much a community-based um, thing, and we had to raise funds uh, locally. We raised just over £3,000 to buy a defibrillator. We actually got nearly £4,500 in the end, and that was a lot of it sponsored by our local community, the parish council. We did a, a fundraising team. We did an annual wool rush dip where we all jumped in Hadley River and raised some money, got very cold. Um, and it, so it, it all started from that point. Um from there, we then actually had uh, support from the ambulance service with uh, extra training. Um, we all had to take the level two first aid qualification, um, so not the basic one at the time, and then we got supported uh, by the ambulance service. Part of this was to actually have a uh, at least uh, a shift or two with the ambulance, so we went and rode with ambulances. Uh, I went to Derriford and did a couple of night shifts. Um, which is quite an eye-opener from from, from firefighting to see a medical response. Um, And from there, it grew into um, us riding with the fire appliance. So we would get alerted um, in the same way as we were alerted to a fire call, and then we would respond with the whole crew. This, as you can quite imagine, became uh, one, it was drawing on the whole resource. We didn't need five or six people. Um, to turn up to a medical thing and it also meant that the pump wasn't available either so shortly afterwards into the sort of early 2000s this then changed 
um, and we then had a separate vehicle. And at the time, we could ride up to five people. And again, this was was really an overkill. We didn't need that many people on, on jobs. So that gets gradually reduced to three. And now we are a standalone vehicle with two responders. So that's uh, and we can ride with one, um, but generally we take two. And uh, and having had experience of doing it for a number of years, two is, is a much better number. So that's the, the, the sort of basic concept of how it started to where we are today. Fantastic, Tony. So, um, so what in an average week? What could you? Ex- how many calls could you expect? Um, and what kind of thing are you doing? Yeah, well, um, our station and, and it fairly well runs out. We've obviously got years of data, and, and it's changed. We've been um, at some stages because we categorise the calls, so we only go out to category one calls uh, alongside the ambulance, not instead of category one calls. Um, are calls that uh, are life-threatening illness or injury. Um, so it could be a, a trauma, but it's more likely to be an illness or injury from, so cardiac arrest would be would be in there, obviously, any major tra- trauma, uh, choking, uh, loss of consciousness, uh, breathing difficulties, uh, anaphylactic, all that side of thing would be come under cap once. Uh, we would get a call alongside if we were closer in time than the nearest resource or with the cardiac arrest we could be a backup resource for the ambulance crews because uh, I'm, I'm not sure if people are aware but if you go to a cardiac arrest you will always get from the ambulance service point of view you will not only get one ambulance um, with a DCA which is your uh, the vans as we see them driving around they would be a, a double crew double crewed um uh, attendance, so that's the DCA crews. You'll get one of those. You will get fast response, and you'll probably get a second. So we can make up part of that resource because obviously um, cardiac arrest is, is very much time critical. Sure. Um, so calls wise in numbers, um, we at the moment. I mean, last year I think we had about 180, 190 calls. So you know we're talking somewhere between three and four a week, um, and we've had years where we've been over 300 calls. So it's somewhere around about 150 to, to 250 would be an average over the last goodness, 24 or five years since we've been doing it. Um, and and like, like I said, you know, they they are crews where we're going with one or two co-responders to deal with those incidents. So if you say you're getting about 150 calls a year, how does that compare to your fire calls? It's, it's roughly around about three to one um, when we're on a busy year. We, we're a station that fire calls arise is around about 100 on average, um, and we could have 150 to 200 co-responders. So that would make the total station um, calls are around about 300 uh, a year, um, probably about 200 co-responders. So you're looking at sort of two to one ratio, yeah. roughly, of co-responders to fire calls. So um, can... Do, do you ever find yourself on scene uh, waiting for an ambulance and then unable to answer fire calls? Yeah, not not often, no. I mean, we, we try to, depending on crewing levels, we try to maintain it alongside of and not instead of uh, as much as we, is practical. Um, but there is occasions where it, it, if the call comes in for, for that and it's a medical need, then yes, of course, the appliance will, will go off the run at that period. But we try to reduce that to the minimum by having... Um, enough crew to be able to maintain it as a, as a standalone um, outside of it. It is a different page, so it's, it's the same pager alerted by our fire control, 
Um, and although we have gone through a period in, in probably 15 years ago where we had ambulance pages as well, and that got a little problematic because our control didn't always know that we'd been alerted and it could be a crossover, um, and there was a few issues. So we're back to where we've always been, which is ambulance control contact the fire control, and the fire control will then alert us. Um, obviously, if we do drop below our minimum crew and a fouring for the fire appliance, the power plant would go off the run at that point. But we try to make that as minimal as we possibly can. Fantastic. And do you think that having those additional calls and having a fairly decent activity level, does that help you recruit and also retain staff at Haverley? Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely, Ben, yes. Um, it's very much, uh, people in the, in the, in the town, it's, it's a town, it's not a, it's not a large town, with a population of around about 2,000 people, but it's not just Haverley, we, we cover a large patch as well, we've got one of the largest geographical patches um, in Devon and Somerset, yeah. so it's quite a big area, um, and we have uh, Oakhampton, it's quite a large town, quite close to us as well, so we do, our, we're well known in the community, uh, people expect us to turn up now. They don't just know that we're part of it. It's very common for us to turn up um, before the ambulance, um, and that gives us an opportunity to make an assessment. On recruitment and then retaining people, we've got three or four new recruits at Haverley now coming through the system, uh, and they're all very enthusiastic about um, coming on board with the uh, medical side of, of how they see the role working as, as, a, as an on-call firefighter in the community. Fantastic. So, so what's good and what's bad about co-responding? Um, I'll, I'll start with some bad points. Um, obviously, it can mean at the moment if we don't have enough crew in that the appliances go off the run and we're all very keen. We, we join as firefighters first sure. and co-responders has been a bit of an add-on, but we now see it as a very close-knit thing. It does work together, so that can be. Um, as a co-responder in your local community, and, I, and I've got... Um, knowledge of this you do will and will go out to uh, people that you know so that it, well that's a good thing or a bad thing but it, it, it does it is brings its own challenges because obviously you you are um you know part of the community involved in the community there will be relations friends colleagues things like that so so that's i wouldn't call it a bad thing but it, it's something that you have to be aware of that, that that's a fact of life um I wouldn't say there's many bad things about the service, actually. I think it, it works really well. Um, so if I can move on to the, some of the good things, what it does for firefighters, and it becomes quite obvious, is as a firefighter, we generally deal, we talk about casualties, and we deal with casualties and numbers of casualties, types of casualty. As a co-responder, you deal with patients, and now they deal with patients. People, we are patients then. So when you respond to any incident that's got a member of the public, um, an RTC or whether it's something happening at home, you can empathise a little bit differently and you start to discuss what might have happened. If I can give you a uh, just a recent call that we had with a, um, an RTC and it wasn't, it, fire service wise, it wasn't, there was nobody trapped, it wasn't uh, too bad. So when we arrived, but, we, but it, something didn't add up. So a question by one of our co-responders to the to the um, casualty, as we look at it with the fire service, but become a patient as far as co-responding, is, you know, well, what happened here? Something not quite right. And it turned out this this, this um, person had a, um, a diabetic incident. 
they had a low blood sugar. And in fact, their, their sugar was around about three. They got their own um, monitor. We encouraged them to monitor themselves. They were three. We encouraged them to have some uh, sugary drink. They got sugary drink with them, some sweets. And they'd actually passed out, which is why the incident happened in the first place. Would we have done that as firefighters? I'm not sure that we would have asked that question. Yeah. So the so the the end result for that uh, person and that incident was a better all round, uh, more professional response. We could then let the ambulance service know right away when they arrive uh, what their injuries were or not. As the case may be, it's actually a medical episode, not a, a an injury based uh, incident. So that's an example of what the sort of type of thing that you pick up as, as co-responders um, as you go along. Other really, really good points are is that you work with, we've got the air ambulance, one of the air ambulances is quite close to us. Um, and they've also got uh, land vehicles as well, so we work very close with them. Um, so we're all on first name terms. We uh, understand what their ambulances look like. We know where their kit is. We know what they're trying to achieve. You know, we aren't the medical response that a paramedic would be nowhere near, and we're never going to be, but we can assist them uh, greatly in their um, in their um, treatment of the patient, which actually gives the paramedics time to actually assess the medical needs, what's the practical um, activities are being done. Very much like a technician does in the ambulance service, not to that level, of course, but we can take all the ops, etc., and this again builds confidence. So these are all good points that um, that working and collaborating together with the ambulance service are, are bringing out of firefighters, and it gives you a great confidence. Fantastic. Uh, one of the one of the things that we have done, as certainly as a station, is when new recruits come in on board, whether or not they're co-responders or not, they get the exposure to the other rest of the crew that are, and we're very keen that they should. Uh, understand when you live in a small community and you wear a uniform, you could be walking back from drill night and you could be coming across somebody who needs some medical assistance and they now have confidence to make that call yeah. um, and, and that, that is a confidence basic. So I would say the one real plus for being a co-responder as well as a firefighter is confidence with people. Yeah. and confidence to ask questions and talk to people as patients and not as always as casualties. Yeah, I, I do feel as as members of the fire sector that our, our casualty care and, and first aid training is, is at a fairly low level. And certainly in the 20 years that I've been in, I've noticed the declining quality of it. And, and as you know, people have a habit of appearing in front of you with a medical problem, expecting you to be able to have some you know, fairly decent ability to sort it out, don't you? Yeah, I mean, the, the actual the difference uh, between the firefighter training is, is, I think, it's practice. And I think co-responding gives you more practice. And, and you know, and the old average of practice makes perfect. I don't think it does. But practice definitely exposes you to the opportunities to practice your uh, knowledge, learn from other people who are doing it. Uh, and we've all been to instances co-responders where in will come a technician or a paramedic and have a completely different assessment of what's happened and from there you can learn and as we say we're always learning it's 360 learning as life should be and, and by learning from them so the, the basis of the parcel dump is very good but adding the co-responder side to it and moving forward does does help you a much more rounded um, 
professional um, when it comes to dealing with with anything that is uh, people based, um, and, and, and hopefully the outcome of it is a, a better outcome for the for the individual. Yeah. So, what's bad about co-responding? What's bad? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, I I, I really struggle, and I, I thought about this for, for a long time. Um, I was concerned at the beginning that co-responding would remove um, ambulances and uh, paramedics, etc., from your local communities. Uh, in reality, it doesn't work. The ambulance services are completely different setups. Fire services, fire service, we tend to respond to incidents and we come back to station. The ambulance service comes, gets an incident, and they then move on from incident to incident to incident and rarely come back to their station until they come to change over with their crews on shift changeovers. So that isn't a bad thing from the fire service, of course, because we, that's something that we don't we don't impact on at all. But what we can do is be there to make sure because we're all we're more responsible, we're more responsible for it. Um, I would say uh, the only bad thing is if we don't manage it as a standalone, and I think that does have an impact on the fire service. So to be able to manage it as a standalone. Is, is the important thing. So that would be one of my only comments that I would say that, that is bad. Apart from that, I don't think there's any bad things for me. So, so the, the requirement to keep both the co-responding and the appliance available is to keep those two distinct um, options open? Yes, as, as much as practical. And we, we it's, it's no different, I suppose, in, in the fire service with our specialist um, teams that we have. You know, they are, they, they run out of stations that are, have got a dual um, kit on them, whether it's SRT or something. But if you can keep as much as practical everything on available, then obviously sure. that is your uh, your end goal. Sure. Sure. Fantastic. Um, so, Terry, you've been looking through some of the documents that I have about co-responding. Um, so, fascinating fact, the podcast isn't a podcast without a fascinating fact. Do you know why the American Fire Service uniforms have a Maltese cross on them? Yeah, I mean, the, the um, American uh, uh, cop, I think, is because a lot of Americans, it's, it's got privatised ambulance services, haven't they? So they tend to, you know, you have to, it's, a, it's almost like a pay-as-you-go system, I suppose, sort of want a better work. Um, and the, obviously, they uh, decided that they needed to have a uh, response that was not paid for. So that came the way of the fire services. And, and obviously, they've evolved that for a number of years now. So it, it's something that they take as read that all ambulance stroke fire services, fire rescue services um, are, are one and the same and they, they work under the same roof with the same kit and the same banner. Yeah. Again, they have slightly different vehicles as, as we've all seen you know, on the, on the TVs, etc. They do have uh, their own ambulances, etc. Because for the same reason as we do with the co-responders, taking yeah. the a fire appliance to a, um, a medical incident isn't the first option. Yeah. Um, it's sure. better if you can have a standalone. So I think the American way has a lot of, a lot of merit. Yeah. So most firefighters in, in America are EMTs uh, and some of them are trained as paramedics. What critics identify is that they would argue that the the resources, the funding it isn't distributed fairly in relationship to calls and that actually most of the or majority of the funding goes towards the fire side and the medical response time is, is underfunded. But that's their inner politics. So going back to the um, Maltese cross that they wear on their uniform, that originates from the uh, during the um, 
uh, crusades, um, knights at multi knights of Malta would offer first aid and firefighting because on a battlefield, um, fire was a weapon of war. And so often uh, offering first aid was uh, a medical assistance was often linked to firefighting. So that's where the link between the fire service and medical response comes from, which is why the Americans still have that emblem on their uniform. It's a little fascinating fact. So, um, so where do you think the UK fire sector is, um, Terry, with its medical response? And, and do you think that we could do better? Um, yes, I think we've, we've come a long way. I think uh, co-responding is, is not just something that's done in Devon and Somerset. It's, 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 it's around the whole country. Um, but there's an opportunity um, to, to model um, the on-call system um, as it is now to uh, encourage um, recruitment um, because activity, um, yes, we, we don't join, we don't want fires, but we expect fires, fires do happen. We don't want accidents, but they do happen. Medical issues do happen. So to be able to respond to those, I think is really important. So I think nationally, uh, as well as locally, there is more that we can do. But it's it needs to be horses for courses. Um, there would be some areas, I mean, if you take Haverley, for instance, and these rural areas, Haverley, hopefully, we're looking at 45 minutes to Exeter. We're looking at 50 minutes to an hour to Plymouth. We're looking at 45 minutes running time to um, Barnstable. And the reality is that's where the ambulances will end up. Um, and then from there, they then have to re reallocate it back out to the rural areas when a call comes in. So the opportunities for rural stations that are some distance from um, ambulance, sorry, from hospitals, is very, very key. So the whole of the country will have areas like this um, where there's an opportunity for the fire rescue services to um, become involved, um, to collaborate, and, and, and then hopefully um, better use of our resources, as well as upskilling of our personnel, which is ultimately going to give the public a, a better all-round service. So that's where my, my own personal view is, that's where I think um, the Fire Rescue Service can really tap in um, and be part of um, um, something much bigger than, than just looking at fires, RTCs and rescues. So looking back in history for the last 10, 15 years, 2013, we had the Ken Knight Facing the Future report, which identified that overall the fire service attendance at instance was, uh, was down 40%. Um, and, and he argues then there's a need for a conversation about broadening the role. Um, in round about just a couple of years after that, the National Fire Chiefs Council, or CFO as it was then, did float a proposal that the fire service could um, absorb and, and manage medical response on behalf of the ambulance service, um, which was obviously controversial. Um, and in 2017, the University of Hertfordshire was commissioned to write a, a report to look at how, how that may work. We've, we've read that. Did it come as a surprise to you that um, in, in that tr they, they ran a trial involving 32 fire services? And in 93% of cases, the fire service could arrive ahead of at the ambulance service. Is that a surprise to you? Um, no, not, not at all. I mean, especially in the rural areas. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. One is geographics. 
as we've discussed before, and, and the fact that, you know, if I just take uh, one of our local ambulance stations at Hosley, um, I mean, obviously, I know the crews very well, um, and they, they were going on shift changeover, say, at 7 o'clock in the morning. They will probably have calls stacking for them. As soon as they, they uh, make themselves available, they're usually off somewhere. That means they can either pick up a patient, they can then be off to Barnstable. That means they are now 45, 50 minutes away from Hadley Hosley area. So right away, your response time for a fire uh, or another response, like a co-responder, is always going to be going to be quicker than that. Yeah. Um, which is where we come into our own, really. Yeah. So the geographics is definitely part of it. Um, the other thing is the um, fire service, our activity, because of a, a lot of fantastic work being done in prevention and protection, etc., is reducing, and, and of course, build quality of houses as well. You know, electrical electricians, you know, all the electrical installations are different now. There's a lot of reasons why we don't go to as many fires, as, uh, etc., as we used to, which is all very, very good stuff. It doesn't mean that you don't need a fire rescue service. You absolutely do. But what you need is something that is more uh, open for what is actually happening in your communities. Yeah, sure. So if, if one area is of activity changes because of lots of good work, then other areas may not may need more support. And that is where I think the Fire and Rescue Service has an opportunity to, uh, to not only broaden their skills, as we said earlier, um, but also help the communities greatly. So response times, fire and rescue services, our, our locations are uh, not to say better, but there's a lot more of us. Uh, and every town pretty well has a fire station. Yeah. Uh, with firefighters, you are trained to a certain level, but actually with not masses of extra training, can actually be offering a much more broad uh, supportive role in their communities uh, and, and so basically offering medical response in rural areas also um, supports having a fire station and providing fire cover that the two will go hand in hand really considering when people are looking at the efficiencies and costs of fire stations so one thing I pick up from the report is that um, they reckon survivability of a cardiac arrest decreases by about 23% for every minute before a defib is applied so, uh, sorry, that's after five minutes. So um, there's, there's obviously a real critical window. And so the report by Hampshire University was followed in the same year by a, a, a study by the New Economy Foundation. Um, and they identified that about, in the case, about 4.3% of, of um, severe injury and cardiac arrest, the fire service by attending could save a life. Um, and so for each of those 4.3% uh, uh, of lives saved, there's a saving of, of, in the region of £70,000 of ongoing clinical care. Um, and, and what their conclusion was, was that for every £1 that the fire service spent, it would save a minimum of £4.41 within the health service. That's a pretty staggering figure. Yes, yeah, I, yeah, I can't agree more. I must admit, when 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 I read the the, the stats, I, I didn't realise because I didn't put it into a monetary value. Mm -hmm. I was looking more on the the emotional, the the, the you know the human side of things. Yeah. But both one goes with the other um, because if you can uh, start that reversal process early, then the the end cost to the to the um, 
to the NHS and ultimately the, the public purse is, is always going to have a, a, a knock-on effect. And anything you can reduce in that way financially has got to be a win. Yeah. It's a win-win. It's, um, I, th- I think, co-responding within a rural area and then medical response by firefighters in a in a city whole-time area. I think those are two very different things. And and I think there'd be a clear risk of it, um, of a, a risk to, to our core duties as firefighters. However, there's a voice in the back of my head that says, as firefighters attending car fires, AFAs, etc., are we saving lives? And I personally would think outside the box. Say, actually, if we had the, you know, reality is that medical response is going to save lives. Um, and actually, looking at those figures, which are which were based in 2017, it estimated that the fire service could save three lives a day um, through, you know, looking at medical response. Considering that, on average, we we save in the region of 240 lives a year through firefighting, um, it definitely does put into context what, what we do and what we can do, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yes. And if you if you put the, the figures against it, um, you, know, you, you know, these are these aren't figures that are, that are back out of air. These are figures with data showing that this is the real um, pattern, you know, overall. And, yeah, there's absolutely no doubt that the, the, uh, the co-responder system... Uh, helps save lives and it also helps promote recovery as well mm-hmm. um, so it's not all about the life saved and, and to actually quantify the the uh, recovery of that uh, patient um, is is also quite high up there as well so uh, because the ambulance service talk about pathways um, and the a paramedic uh, technician crew certainly a paramedic crew will make a pathway for an individual to make sure they get the right appropriate treatment um but it's the initial start. I think a, a paramedic, in fact, he's an air ambulance um, um, doctor now, actually, because he's, he's gone on from being a paramedic. He's now a doctor who I've known for a long time. Says if you don't, you can have the best facilities you want in A&E with the best consultants, with all the best equipment. But if you don't make that initial first five to 10 minute intervention, then actually, that you can spend whatever you like later on and generally it will only cost more if you don't get it right at the beginning yeah. Um, so yeah so co-responding um, first responding uh, any medical care that is given to an individual uh, on the onset of their condition is massively important not just financially but um, to the re- hopefully to the um, recover of the, the individual and hopefully then that they hopefully won't need extra resources or so many resources down the road either so yeah it's not just the cost of the lives it is savings it'll be the medical saving as well so i'm just gonna have to correct myself here terry i said that we save 260 lives a year as firefighters actually there are 260 um fire deaths a year on average and so i'm going to guess that how many lives do we save as as firefighters? I don't know, but I don't think it would equate to three lives a day um, that we can cl- clinically demonstrate through offering a support to cardiac arrest. Um, and, and there's an ethical dimension to this, isn't there, that challenges us within the UK fire sector? Yes, yes, there is. There definitely is. Yeah, um, I mean, the yeah, as a uniformed service. Uh, I think anything that's got a uniform service to is expected a certain level. I mean, we, we all know the scenario of, you know, when we turn up to a fire, 
you know, and it's right that the general public are going one way and we're going the other. Yeah. Uh, it's the same with the ambulance service, the police service, the fire service, and, and so we have a uniform on. And by putting a uniform on, I'm a great believer. I've been doing it a long time. I'm actually surrounded by uh, family members who are in um, uniform services as well. Okay. And we have the opportunities. We have the uniform, and the expectation of the public is that we do something. Um, so by having the extra resource like a co-responder um, in, a, in a community like, like, like where I am in Hatherley and the and surrounding areas um, gives us an extra um, opportunity to assist and be seen as well. So people their perception, they see you're also getting value for money um, because you see in the fire service and the co-responders are out and about and they don't see the co-responder vehicle as a fire appliance, they see it as a medical Absolutely. Um, eight to the community. So, yeah, no, there is definitely a, um, an expectation that we, we, we're doing the right thing. So, just going back to the trials that were run in 2017, so 32 fire services were involved, and the what was identified was that in 93% of occasions, the fire service could attend the cardiac arrest ahead of the ambulance. Uh, and in some cases, up to a nine minutes different uh, time differential which is significant the average uk ambulance response time at that moment in time was 16 and a half minutes and i'm going to guess it's far worse now with everything that we've seen um and incidentally as well one of the things i don't find reports is that the uk ambulance service compared to other european and developed country ambulance services has always performed poorly um, and, and so, and I'm imagining that where we are now is is, is probably worse. So, so, so just based on those times, then it's, it's useful to note that a lot of those services we're using on on call firefighters. So that response time includes an additional three to five minutes turnout time. So, I, I imagine there's potential to even improve on those statistics. So that trial came to an end um, as a result of the Fire Brigades Union pulling out of that for um, a principled reason that, that you know I, I recognise and respect, which was that, that they believed that there was risk developing and that there was a need for national risk assessments uh, and you know um, national infrastructure to, to support those those trials and potentially any medical response and uh, and I, I think that's a highly principled and responsible response but I, I think it still leaves a massive problem unsolved and a problem that unfortunately is resulting in three people a day um, losing their lives where the fire service could dem- demonstrably be making a response then there's surely a need to start drawing tying up those ends and start having some really positive conversations to see if we can move our way through this yeah, I mean, uh, as you said, you know, there, there is, um, you, when you do take on any activity, um, looking at the risks and the benefits are, are, are massively important. Um, I think we've discussed the benefits, um, and like I said, there isn't so many bad points, but there, there is risk. Um, you know, you need to make sure you are very aware of safeguarding. You need to make sure that you're very aware of, of uh, protecting yourself and decide when something's appropriate, because... Um, I'm a great believer in having done it practically that the, the, the crews of two are, are the minimum, really. There is occasions when you can go on your own. I have done it on my own, but it's a different dynamic and you have to be, I think if you're quite experienced, you can uh, make an assessment of a scene quite quickly, mm-hmm. but you're on your own. So where's, where's, where's the back of if something goes wrong? So I think crews of two ambulance 
crews generally ride in crews of two or more. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some fast response, um, but they generally go to back up other existing crews that they tend not to respond on their own all the time. So I think that risk assessment is, is right, and I think there is risks. Um, that's on the practical side. Um, the other risk, of course, are, are what happens to the ambulance service. Obviously, you're not there to be instead of. Of course um, not. And that I don't see that ever um, in said One, we don't transport. Um, and there's never a, a situation which, which I've been to where you haven't had some kind of ambulance response. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, so I think the risk there, I think, is, is negligible. Um, but I don't think the risk to individual co-responders can be taken lightly. No. Um, but as long as with the correct um, support and the correct, and we do have the correct support um, and, and training, well, one of the supports that we do have as co-responders is we have our direct telephone number to our ambulance uh, co-responder line. Um, and basically that is a, a number that will really go through to the call centre. Um, but it's a, it's a dedicated uh, paramedic on the other end. Right. One, to give you clinical advice if uh-huh. you need it. Yep. Two, for you to update the incident as well. So you can update and say, you know, um, you can, I can I give you a scenario in a moment if you like, which, which is how it works. Um, but that's also there for that call. You might get there and go, do you know what? I don't think we were going in here because we're not comfortable with the situation. So at that point, we can have those discussions. Um, um, so there is a lot of support in the background. Fantastic. So I think we might start to sort of wrap this up, Terry. And and I think you know what we've identified from the from the research and the data is that the fire service, particularly in rural areas, can play a, a huge part in in making communities safer and offering a medical response. Um, it's clearly demonstrable it can be done, and you know stations like yours demonstrate how effective it will be. Um, there's, there's pros, pros and cons, uh, and there's a, a big conversation to be had, uh, I think. Uh, and I think that that conversation is it, not simple, clearly, but I, I think it's really important to look at the role of for, for the role of fire stations. And undoubtedly, fire stations will close going forward due to low core levels uh, and raising raising costs unless we can look at broadening the role and bringing stuff on board. However, as you say, it's got to be done right and it can't be done as a, as a replacement or a sticking plaster to the ambulance service. No, no, I can't agree more. Um, I think that it's it's part of the future of the fire and rescue services and the emergency services as a whole, actually, with the, certainly with the ambulance. We do align very well with the ambulance service um, for lots of reasons. Um, so, yeah, I think um, going forward, I, I can't agree more. I think it's it needs to be explored and I think it will help um, the service map out the future for fire and rescue services and I think the ambulance medical side of that, shall we say, is definitely something that um, is going to be taken on, on alongside it and work really well together hopefully in the future. Fantastic. Well, listen, Terry, thanks very much for your time. Um, best of luck to you and your colleagues um, offering that amazing co-responding service in Haverley. Um, thanks to everyone that's listened and uh, look out for future podcasts. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Priority Message, why not subscribe to the podcast and recommend to your colleagues? We hope you will be joining us again soon.